Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Mike Trott. Mike began his career as a security specialist in the United States Air Force, serving six of his 10 years in Europe as a member of a select protective operations team and assigned to the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, OSI. While in Europe, he also operated as a special weapons and tactics instructor, team lead and field supervisor for an operational 15-man tactical unit and conducted bilateral training and joint operations with the German police and military special operation units. After his time in the Air Force, he continued his security career with the Central Intelligence Agency as a special agent and assistant team leader, serving on the protective security detail for CIA Director George Tenet and several deputy directors for many years. Concurrently, he supported the agency's clandestine efforts to provide critical low-profile protection in various overseas locations in extreme high-threat conditions. Mr. Trott is a graduate of the U.S. Federal Law Enforcement Academy and holds degrees in police administration, military science, and instructor technology. Currently, he serves as vice president and corporate head of global security for a preeminent developer of international private residential club communities. Mike is also the author of a great book called The Protected. Mike, welcome to the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence podcast. Fred, thank you very much for the introduction and uh, good to talk to you again, my friend. It's good to talk to you, Mike. Uh, Mike, you are an expert in executive protection. Your book covered it so well, and I know I've referred it to several people to read to just understand the, the industry. As you look at your time in protection at the CIA and compare it to your time in protection in the private sector, what are some of the big differences? Good question. Uh, and that, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, a topic I try to get into in the book as I explain the differences between sort of private sector programs and what we had at our disposal at the uh, CIA or it could be any other federal program. And I think the difference might be that you have a really a solid mix of operators uh, within an organization like the CIA, for example, uh, without getting into the size of the teams, but you have individuals from all walks of life. And I think what might have helped us at the agency was... And it's, it's the pure nature of the agency to be able to blend in because uh, it's not that we're just providing protection in Washington, D.C., but it could be any number of countries around the world. So you have to be able to blend in. So I think having a, a demographic of a team that is made up of, of different people, uh, different looks, walk of life, that really helps us. So when you have a trip to location, you can kind of pick and choose the right agents to, to be effective in that particular area. And that's important. If you're a small uh, corporate detail, perhaps, or maybe a one or two man detail, detail or two-person detail, uh, you have fewer options available. So I think that was one benefit that we had at the agency. And the other thing, and you and I kind of chatted about this recently with the sort of the governor's detail and the 
or the governor of Michigan. Right. You have a large mechanism watching for those kinds of risk or being able to step in and say, hey, we picked up some chatter or some concerns about your principal. And you got a government mechanism around you to help you. And private sector doesn't always have that. So you have to lean on other platforms and other applications and kind of think outside the box. So you're never going to be able to uh, operate on a small detail like you would for the Secret Service or the agency or State Department. You know, those are the challenges that the smaller teams have to work with. Mike, the CIA has a very important protective mission. Could you go into a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, I mean, obviously you have the principles themselves. And, you know, since I left the agency, they picked up the DNI. So they picked up two more principles. So if you can imagine having a detail for two principles, like the director and deputy director, maybe a few others under that umbrella. And then all of a sudden, the government adds a whole new level uh, with the DNI. So now you have two additional principles and they have, you know, family members and people part of that. So very quickly, it got complicated, if you will. So you can imagine without talking numbers, you had to pretty much double the size. So now you had to, you know, not only the movement of the director, but, you know, the mission of the CIA is pretty important. Obviously, that is the president's arm of intelligence. And so when a director or principal is moving around uh, the world or around the country, those movements need to be kept very quiet and be very secretly when you can. You will remember your days in State Department. If you had a presidential visit, uh, soon after that, you would have a State Department visit. And probably not too long after that, the CIA director would come in and continue to have those discussions with the intelligence officials of that particular country. And sometimes that was very critical conversation where nobody, you really didn't want everybody to know you were there. And while we had a very capable team, you didn't have the the arm of the Secret Service, or even sometimes a group the size of the State Department. So you had to operate quite differently. The meetings that a director of uh, the CIA or deputy director may have uh, again, we don't want everybody to know we're having a particular meeting with somebody. So that's where I find sometimes uh, agents who have operated with the CIA protective detail, they have to acclimate to the climate very quickly and to the mission very quickly. It's not just a high profile detail. Yes, sometimes we are at state dinners or a high profile visitor going to the White House and you know everybody's going to know that. But at the same time, by the end of that night, we may jump on a plane and go to a, a particular country where we don't want anybody to know we're there. So you have to quickly change, if you will, your your uh, mode of operation. And you know, that requires different equipment, different aircraft, different vehicles, and different modes of travel. So, yeah, it's a very dynamic uh, at the agency. Uh, again, Fred, I'll... You know, I'll sort of sort of raise the flag for the agents that serve in these details. They're at the end of four or five, six years in that detail. You've got a lot of tools in your toolbox that other sort of agents on details may or may not have just because of the dynamic nature of protecting the CIA director. Yeah, certainly unsung heroes. Uh... We, we know that uh, having worked uh, alongside them for, for many years, and, and certainly uh, the, the agency has suffered a lot of tragedy over the years with uh, primarily the embassy bombing in Beirut and then the, the kidnapping of Bill Buckley, the station chief, which, uh, you know, I wrote about. But, you know, the thing, Mike, about this business is uh, when hard lessons are learned, uh, the, the government does adapt and, and makes positive changes. Don't you agree? I do agree. And I think the frustration may be sometimes, Fred, and you've seen this, that sometimes on our side, we do see the red flags, we see the concerns, and uh, sometimes we can adapt to that. But sometimes we have to get approval for that sort of change, whether it's budgets or it's a 
additional manpower or just change of operations. And sometimes we're very frustrated when we see sort of the death of our friends or uh, colleagues coast comes to mind, right? where I think we knew we weren't quite doing it the way we should. And, and that was brought to the attention of people. And it took a major crisis and a tragedy of, of um, seven officers to, to die before we said, okay, you know, we're not going to allow a source into a compound without being searched. So, you know, to your point, Fred, I, I think that was called out many times. And, you know, we could get into Benghazi and many other situations where I think the operators on the ground saw a need for change. But to your point, when something bad does happen, we do, you know, we, we make some pretty rapid changes and it gives us the, the muscles we need to stand up on our box and go, damn it, that's not going to happen again. Yeah, without a doubt. Now let's switch to uh, what appears to be never-ending pandemic. Uh, Mike, what do you see the as the biggest changes in executive protection or global security in our current COVID world? You know, that's been interesting to watch and just kind of, again, watch the way this plays out. And, and you and I both have pretty strong relationships with a lot of teams, and I still stay in contact with the guys that are providing, you know, protection for very high-level individuals. And it's been interesting to watch because they their travel for number one has kind of come to a screeching halt. And that's when you're in a detail traveling 150, 200 days, 150 days a year, and all of a sudden... <laughs> You're not traveling at all. You're going, what am I supposed to be doing? So you've seen a lot of details kind of uh, draw down. I've I've talked to quite a few teams that have let some people go. Uh, And that's kind of disturbing because you don't just turn right right around and ramp back up. So it's kind of short-sighted to let people go. But at the same time, I, I think it's um, it's been an excellent opportunity if you've taken advantage of it as a detail leader or team leader to go, okay, I've had some time on my hands. What do we do with this time? First and foremost, you got to ask yourself, what does this, what risk or vulnerability does this uh, increase my principal? So maybe if principal's not traveling as much, what are they doing? They're probably staying home. So they're pretty predictable now. So that could be a concern, and that may be one of the reasons why some of the high-profile individuals who have protection have taken this opportunity to find a new home or a new location to kind of ride out the storm, if you will. I joked about this a little bit in the book about you know those who sort of play into the doomsday philosophy. You could have definitely see the wheels turning in certain people's mind going, wow, this is it. It's all going to go bad fast. So they start looking for new places to go that's isolated. And, you know, I kind of joked about there's a new fond, interesting Kiwi, uh, meaning <laughs> people are interested in going to New Zealand or Australia. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that. I've got some friends that are down there right now with their principals in different places around the world just to take advantage of that oscillation. So, you know, to your point now, these teams are going into different areas. They have to set up operations in different areas. Maybe they need more people, less people. Uh, and you've got COVID testing. I know some guys that couldn't travel last minute because they didn't have the COVID testing appropriate for the location where they're going, but the principals did. So then they had to scramble to get people to, uh, to meet them on the other side. So there's just been a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of time to to review your program and looking at your health security, as an example. I, I wrote a lot in the book about health security, and I interviewed Dr. Darling and Dr. Lang, the former White House doctors, to help me understand the medical program needs to be around principles. And even for me, it was kind of an eye-opening sort of lesson for these guys to talk to me about, you know, what they did at the White House and 
maybe everybody doesn't need a White House medical situation room, but this should be a time for programs to look at their medical uh, safety apparatus around their principals and what they have and don't have and principals who have underlying health conditions or other concerns that maybe they didn't even know about before. So there's been a great opportunity to take some lessons learned from this and then hopefully come out on the other side with a better program and we'll see what happens. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTIC's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.ai/center. That's ontic.ai/center. Mike, as you think back on uh, your career, which um, is is a lot like mine, where we span a few decades now. What do you see as some of the biggest changes in our business since you first got in? Technology has to be kind of uh, first and foremost, I believe. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go back to the CIA when they had a um, the very first sort of award ceremony for the protective detail. They've never really recognized this group that's been in, in existence since uh, 1947, to be honest, uh, when the agency was formed. And it was really interesting. Uh, they had a presentation with several members on the stage, uh, some agents that were there from the early 50s. That's amazing. It really was an amazing just uh, conversation to see a gentleman sitting on stage that was in his late 80s that, were, that was part of uh, the detail in the early 50s all the way to the current day. And that conversation came up, Fred. What, what's different? And it was funny. This guy was like, you know what? I had a 38 with uh, a few extra rounds in my, my pocket <laughs> and, and a flashlight. And I'm looking down the aisle and I'm seeing all the conversation about weaponry and long range weapons and hard cars and yeah. uh, radio systems and covert communications. I'm like, holy cow, is it, you know, it's all about needed. <laughs> so I think technology, I think technology, weapon systems is going to be the big thing. That's the, probably the biggest change. And that's positive. I think Fred is sometimes negative. Um, we have a lot of, you know, the biggest sort of enemy, if you will, of a protected details of distraction. And um, I find some of the details and some of the teams I've been around in recent years quite distracted by the by the tools. And a cell phone comes to an example or other things. We're always looking for the best technology, the new widgets. But at the end of the day, the hard basic principles of protecting someone is really attention to detail and, and that proximity and ability to react quickly and to think smartly. And I think sometimes we're relying a little bit too much on technology. And that concerns me a little bit of where we go as we get into driverless cars and we get into dual use technology, which is a concern that we should have as a country that we're allowing a lot of technology in that could have an adverse capability. And uh, so, yeah, I'd say technology is probably the it's been the biggest change, but it's also one of the biggest concerns, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, certainly observation skills, wouldn't you say, are critical? <laughs> Huge. You know, if, if you look at lessons learned, Fred, I'm sure you have a bunch. Uh, I was just thinking about this other day in a conversation with somebody. Probably some of the biggest mistakes 
have been made on the details when agents just weren't paying attention. And so, or having a proper, you know, using your, your proper observation skills or knowing what to do when you see something that doesn't look right. How do you act? When do you act? How do you act to that? So, uh, no, 100%. Uh, and a lot of details are not armed. Uh, not everybody's carrying weapons today. So, you know, that uh, kind of changes your tactic and you have to move a little faster. So you're spot on 100%. And as you think back of those conversations with uh, the the old timers on the stage and, and uh, in those days, you know, without the internet and without uh, all the technology that uh, we've in, we've evolved to, what do you think their perceptions are of uh, the current state of the protection field? I, I think when I had a conversation with the gentleman who was there, he was just so impressed. I mean, again, it's hard to imagine in your lifetime, say 30 years. I mean, you and I could be having this conversation when we're in our 80s and 90s and looking back, well, wow, you know, we used to carry this little thing called a smartphone and, you know, now it's embedded in our arm or our head. Who knows where it's going to go in 30 years? So, I think for these guys, it was just like, wow, I couldn't, you know, we were joking with him because a question was asked, you know, what, what was your form of communication that you used back in that day? And he kind of looked down and thought about it. He reached into his uh, shirt pocket and he pulled out his ink pen. <laughs> <laughs> so you think about it, you're like, wow, we went from an ink pen to, you know, the levels of communication we have today, which is you know, just amazing. So, yeah, I think they were just impressed with the amount of tools that are available today to protect somebody. But it would be an interesting study how many people who have been, you know, sort of a, a subject of a violent attack or subject to um, even a low level attack today with all the technology and capability we have compared to say 30 years ago during this gentleman's time same same fears and concerns i mean you know, i grew up sort of in the days of living in germany with the red army faction and right. let me tell you what, those days were real red army faction created a, a lot of anxiety during those days in, in, in europe and especially germany brilliant terrorist group Oh my gosh, I'm unbelievable, and you and I know, you know, sort of by relationship with that. And you know, after the hair housing attack, I uh, I was a security driver for a, a particular general who, you know, without getting into deep details, who was on the hit list of the Red Army faction. So after that hair housing attack, it, it changed my life for a few years. That's when it got real for me that how quick you could. Uh, you, know, you could be eliminated. But my point being, you know, at that particular time, you know, we didn't have a lot of sophisticated technology. You know, having a, a, a level seven armored vehicle was important to us for sure. But as we saw here, House's vehicle was a level seven and uh, they were able to reach right in and uh, take his life without killing anybody else. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's I think we've come a long way in some areas and some ways we haven't. Yeah, very well said on that. Uh, Mike, what keeps you up at night with uh, your current uh, scope of global security operations? I think right now it's just being able to quickly adapt to the, you know, obviously the changes to COVID. There's some benefits by what COVID has brought in terms of my life and just not having as many people travel. My particular uh, area of uh, responsibility now is managing 14, 15 different geographic locations where a lot of high-profile, wealthy people spend their time. So the fact that some of these people are not spending as much time there because of travel, that helps me to that degree. But what keeps me up is what happens, you know, look at the election we have coming up. That, that does concern me a little bit. I don't want to get into the panic mode. I was actually reading our good buddy's article this morning, Scott Stewart, on uh, don't freak out over the U.S. election violence. Right. Uh, and I think that's an important 
topic. I talk quite a bit about that in my book as well, uh, Fred, and that is I don't like to use fear as a, as a motivator, however it is, but I don't like to use it as a tool to force people to think a certain way. I'd rather provide them information about whether or not the fear is real or, or what do we do about that fear, and I think that's what Scott was trying to talk about. But I, I am concerned, uh, and this would be a time if I had a principal who was on a particular list or might be a target of some of these uh, anarchist groups or these extremist groups. I would be concerned about what happens after the election. Uh, I think it's a short period of time, hopefully. I, I agree with Scott. I don't think there's need to freak out. And I, I have a lot of faith in uh, the American society, and as, as a group of people, we'll get our handle on it, no matter who's elected. But as we've seen with you know the Oklahoma and Tim Bay and some other individuals, it only takes a few people to really cause a, a lot of trouble. And I just hope we're able to get around that. So a lot of my clubs, again, without going into detail, are my, our properties um, have very influential people. So I have to make sure that we're well protected in terms of taking care of these people. And then just the whole COVID crisis in general, uh, we have quite a few employees and contractors and vendors, and that probably makes up 40, 50% of my day is case management. Uh, we have a, a medical team that's uh, brought in early February to help us navigate this, but it's a it's a, a group effort. And we have daily communication about our, our cases and making changes. And you know, right now we're trying to, uh, to decide that we need to make a travel policy change uh, based on the upcoming um, winter months of, you know, we don't want to expose anybody uh, needlessly. And knock on wood, we've not had any deaths associated to uh, COVID within our operation. And I don't want to have one. So um, it's just, uh, as you know, Fred, there's a lot of little things that just kind of when you lay down at night, there's a lot of little uh, thought bubbles that float over your head to thinking about concerns. And some of these concerns are now and some of these concerns are six months or a year down the road that we tend to look forward. You know, hopefully we're looking forward past the immediate few months and looking into the future. Mike, what advice would you give to those individuals that are out there that are looking to get into the private sector perhaps protect the ultra high net worth, uh, get into global security operations, what would be some of the principles that you could pass on to, to help folks think about this profession? I think going back to that discussion a few minutes ago about the difference of you know, what's happened 30, 40 years ago with you know, this, uh, some of our agents back in the 40s and 50s compared to today, uh, the one thing that he was sort of surprised about was the, the amount of talent that we do have. And I will say, I'm, I'm impressed by the, the intellect and the flexibility that some of our younger agents have coming out of whether it's colleges or universities or uh, other government programs or even, even private sector. There's some really, really wicked, smart, talented young people out there. And because our profession has grown in terms of skill set, so if you just break down the particular skills of, of a detail and the drivers and, and, and the sort of the close protection individuals, and as we get into more sophisticated weaponry and, and technology and gadgets, uh, IT related security, protective intelligence, which is a big sort of um, explosion we've had in the recent few years in the private sector, which I truly love. I'm very excited about that part. But I think there's there's more opportunities in different skill sets. So back probably in our day when we came in, you either could shoot, couldn't shoot, drive, couldn't drive, or you had the ability to be polished enough to be around your principal. Past that, 
you know, if we had those three skill sets, we were pretty good to go. Today, you've got to be pretty smart. You've got to be quick to adapt to all the changes that we have going around us. So I would, you know, tell some of the young people thinking about getting into the profession, what is your favorite thing to do? What's your aptitude towards technology or, or towards weaponry or uh, towards driving? There's nothing wrong with being a, a security driver. I mean, it's kind of where I came from in early years in Germany. There's nothing more fun driving on the Autobahn at 120, 30 miles an hour in a motorcade. <laughs> Dude, that's just, that was all, that was uh, some cool stuff. And then to continue to hone those skills as a security driver, and I will, I'm not going to pick on anybody here, but I will say a, a person who is a, a well-rounded agent will always be the best agent versus somebody who's just a good shooter or somebody maybe who's got some advanced self-defense skills or somebody who only drives, but once he gets out of the car, he trips over his feet. Once you have somebody that's got you know, a wide degree of skill sets, that's going to be a fantastic agent going down the road. So I think as a new agent coming in, you have to understand or at least identify, do you have a particular lane that you want to specialize in, which you can today, which we didn't years ago, or do you want to be a well-rounded agent and spend a couple years in a car, spend a couple years driving a follow car, spend a couple years doing a lot of foreign advances, get your medical skills, really dive deeper into technology and be a well-rounded agent. So there's more than one lane that you and I had probably 30 years ago. And I think uh, it's an exciting time for a young agent to come into this field. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, Mike, what haven't I asked you that you would like to say? I I think, Fred, uh, yeah, that's a tricky question. Thanks for putting me on the spot there. As I did write in the book, you know, this is probably one of the oldest professions. If we're talking about this particular profession of executive protection or close protection, bodyguard work, however you want to classify it. It is probably one of the oldest professions known to mankind. Ever since there's been a day that somebody has been under threat, if you think back to villages and, you know, whatever the early days of man, if there was a group willing to cause or wanting to cause harm to somebody, there was probably somebody who stepped up and said, you know, no, you're not going to do that. And then that was your first uh, close protection officer. And that could be, you know, probably thousands and thousands of years ago. And as you see throughout history of of knights and samurais and and different uh, regional sort of close protection people, we've we have modernized this field into a very unique profession, a very close professional uh, skill set, if you will. And um, it's not going to go away. I mean, this is one particular area of businesses closed down, different uh, technologies die out. Um, you look at Kodak, it was around forever and couldn't, couldn't you know, sort of make that transition. Close protection, bodyguard work, uh, executive protection, that's going to be around to probably to the very end of time. So it's an exciting profession to be a part of. And I, I encourage people to look at the industry, consider the industry more, and just uh, to explore those opportunities because I think we still, the one area that Fred, I'm um, a big fan of, and that is the protective intelligence area. And I'm really, really excited to where you know, groups like Ontic that are bringing that to life. You and I could not have imagined having a private sector uh, platform like Ontic 20, 30 years ago. That would have only lived with a secret service, and even then it was kind of light. But to look at what the private sector has now in terms of protective intelligence and analytical work and being able to connect the dots, we just opened up a whole new avenue of specialists to come into this career and really help the guys and gals on the street be more effective of providing us that, that, that sort of uh, protective intelligence that we were we didn't have access to years ago. So, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to be part of the profession and, you know, look forward to seeing where it goes in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mike Trott is the author of The Protected, 
and I would encourage you to pick up a copy. Mike, thank you for being on the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence podcast. Fred, thank you very much for having it, and I would uh, be remiss if I didn't say once again, thank you for your friendship over the years. Thank you for endorsing uh, the Protected. That was very much appreciated, and your just ongoing support and counseling and, and uh, friendship regarding the profession as well as just writing and just as a friend. So thank you very much, Fred. It was a pleasure. My pleasure, Mike. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.